I will give you a brief history of the world, the creation, the incarnation, redemption, and the consummation. That's it, right there. You have a brief history of the world. God created the world. God sent his son to redeem the world. And he's coming again. We look at that and we see significant things. But if we were to take that point from when Christ came, died on the cross, rose again, and was ascended into heaven, what is the key, next key thing? What is the key thing that would maybe divide that from all the rest of history? Let me suggest that that was the Reformation. The Reformation was the next huge dividing point of all history. An interesting thing is about that, we can actually date that. You notice how you can date certain things in history. If you look at World War II, for example, you can say the real change in World War II came when the United States came in, and we can date that from December 7th, 1941, a day which shall live in infamy with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Or if you even look at the, the, the uh, formation of this nation, what do we look at? July 4th, 1776. Now, we'd already started fighting the British in 1775, but that date, when everyone signed and made public the Declaration of Independence, that is a significant date. And so it is with the Reformation. With the Reformation, we can look at one little incident which just started it and transformed everything. And that is October 31st, 1517. Luther nails a 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door. And that changed everything. Now, the problem I've always had as we as Protestants, especially, I guess sometimes we don't do as much celebrating as other people. But I think this should be a major holiday for the church. That's why if I have a chance to preach on what I would call Reformation Sunday, I'm going to preach on the Reformation and, and those topics there. That's the focus, just as when it comes to Christmas and the incarnation of Jesus Christ, I preach on the incarnation. When it comes to Easter and the resurrection, I preach on the resurrection. And so it is, I think, even though this is of less importance than those two, uh, those two holidays, I think this is important to do that. But notice how, how the world always distorts and, and detracts from those things. You know, if you, if you look at Christmas and then we have all this whole thing about Santa Claus and all that, that stuff, right? Easter, we have the Easter Bunny. With the Reformation, we're stuck with Halloween, aren't we? And that's why I really like to stand up and say, no, this is Reformation, October 31st, Reformation Day, because it was such an important thing. If we're going to look at the Reformation and understand the Reformation, if you want to summarize the Reformation, you can summarize it in what we call the solas. The solas. Sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christos, soli deo gloria. 
Sola Scripturas, by scriptures alone. That's the only authority we have. Sola Fides, by faith alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. Sola Christos, saved by Christ alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone belongs the glory. Well, if we look at Luther, he was a good Catholic boy. He was studying in Erfurt, and he was headed back to Erfurt in 1505. He got caught in a thunderstorm. And in that thunderstorm, he was almost struck by a bolt of lightning. Some even say he was struck by a bolt of lightning. Scared him witless. He promised immediately to St. Anne, who is the, St. Anne is, uh, was supposedly the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus. He prayed to St. Anne that he would become a monk, and he did. He became an Augustinian monk, and uh, he was a, a monk's monk, if you will. He did everything he was supposed to be to be a good monk, and yet he was tortured by his sins. He still had no confidence that were the next bolt of lightning to hit him, he would have any access into heaven. It bothered him. And those who were above him could see that. They sent him to Rome, thinking once he's in Rome, the holy city, things would be better. Actually, they got worse there. Luther, at one point, at this point, talked about the love of God. He said, love God? No, I hate God. Why? Because he is holy. He's the one that's going to send me to hell. And then they finally made him a professor he became a, a priest, then a professor. He started teaching. He started teaching through the book of Romans. And then he started teaching through the book of Galatians. And suddenly we find out that he had a conversion experience. If you look in Romans, Romans 1.17, and then in, in Galatians 3.11, this little passage ran by that he finally grasped, he said, the just or the righteous will live by faith. The righteous or the just will live by faith. It wasn't his works. It wasn't his confessions. It wasn't all that stuff. It was his faith in one thing, Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection. And that totally transformed him. And so I want to look at some of the passages today. I chose the Galatians passage instead of the Romans passage. If you want to understand how significant this was for Martin Luther, all you have to do is look at his commentaries. You see a lot of big books, and, and if you were to look at his series of commentaries, they would, most of them are fit in one volume. Now, obviously, Psalms probably, there's a couple volumes because it's, it's bigger because it's such a big book. But suddenly you hit Galatians, and Galatians is only six chapters, right? Two volumes, two volumes for Galatians. 
because it was that important. God's grace. Justification by faith and not works. It's that important. And so I want to look at just a passage in Galatians, which includes that passage, which was so, so significant to Martin Luther. And then we'll comment and make some applications on it. Let's look at verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. Now, first off, we understand here he's talking about Abraham and he's going to be talking about all, all those who are by faith. And, uh, you know, another huge argument for covenant theology, right? Here we go. We're all children of Abraham if we believe in Jesus Christ. You know, and that's what he's saying. Of all those who believe, the Greek term is pistuo. By the way, pistuo is the verb form. It means believe, trust. When we read in John 3, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, whoever believeth is that word, pistuo. That's the one. That's the verb form. Soon he's going to be talking about faith. That word is pistis. It's the exact same word, except that's the noun form. Noun form, verb form. They're the exact same thing. To believe, to trust, to rely on him. And that's, and that's what it is. And he says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you're believing, you're a child of Abraham. Okay, we're not going to get into all the covenant theology today. But uh, it's, it's certainly there. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say, and it was credit to him as righteousness. Logizomai is the term. It means to account or account and credited is wonderful because it's almost like a banker's term, you know, that you have money that uh, is put in your account for you. It's not maybe not that you earned it and got it there. It's put in an account. I, I, one of my daughter's friends is, is a young man from Brazil. And um, his father happens to be very, very wealthy. And so when they would go out, he'd go shopping, he'd just spend money. Why? Because his account would, after he spent all that, would suddenly be credited back because his father was wealthy and would put money back in it. And that's kind of the idea here. Our Faith, what, has credited us. Suddenly we're credited with righteousness. And we'll see whose righteousness that really is. And so we see that, that, that kind of, of thing. And so we have the term righteousness. We have righteousness. Now there's a number of uh, uh, definitions of righteousness. Dikiasune is, is the term, and as we're going to see, there's a number of words that are close to it, noun form. Uh, this is the noun form. We have verb forms, to be made righteous. And that we're going to go over as well. But what does that mean? Well, it means righteous good behavior. Well, in a legal sense, it means you're upright. In other words, uh, you haven't committed any crime. In the third sense, it's God's attribute of righteousness, which defines every, all other righteousnesses. And that's probably the most important one. And then... The fourth definition of righteousness is it's behavior that God requires. 
re behavior that God requires. And uh, that's, again, that righteousness and, and uh, the good behavior. And that's what God requires from us. Perfectly. And that's the one that gets us in trouble because we know our weaknesses and we cannot keep and fulfill God's righteousness in that sense. And then the last definition is the righteousness and especially which the way Paul uses it with the divine action by which God puts a person right with him. It's the dynamic power in the believer's life it's God's imputed righteousness. The state of having been made righteous by God. And so that's what Paul is saying here. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was righteous not because of the good things he did, but because God credited his, his faith as righteousness. His belief and then he goes on. He says, understand that those who believe are the children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you so that those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so we see that all those who have faith are sons of Abraham. The scripture predicted it. All the nations would be blessed in Abraham. Those of faith are blessed along with him. But there's a problem. And Paul gets into this in verse 10. He says, this is how you're justified. But wait, if all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Now there's a problem. If you're going to rely on the law, you're under a curse. Qatar is the term for that, it, the curse. It's a kind of a legal action, a condemnation, if you will. And why are they under a curse? Well, we see in verse 10, accursed is everyone who does not continue in everything written in the book of the law. So if you're going to try to be justified by the law, you can't cherry pick. You can't say, well, I'm going to be really good in this way, maybe not so good in that way. You have to be righteous completely, perfectly, and that doesn't happen. And then he goes on to say, <clears throat> Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book. And then in verse 11, he goes on and he says, Clearly, no one is justified before God by law, because the righteous will live by faith. No one is justified. Dikaiao is the verb form of that word for righteousness. No one is made righteous or justified by what? By the law. And that's clearly evident. He says, why? Because the only way you're made righteous is by faith. The righteous... The righteous, and that's, this is the personal noun, now dikaios, the righteous person, if you will, is righteous, and they're rightly related with God. How? By faith 
that confidence and trust in him. Paul got that from Habakkuk 2.4. And uh, the context of that is quite interesting. But at any rate, uh, Habakkuk was complaining about the unrighteousness of the people at the time, the Jewish people. And God says, gives him an answer. He says, I'm going to take care of it. Habakkuk thinks, good. What are you going to do? He says, I'm going to send the Babylonians. And they're going to put you in captivity. And they're going to judge you. And then, of course, Habakkuk is like, they're worse than we are. You can't do that. And God says, yeah, I can. I'm going to. But guess what? The righteous, you will live. But you will live by faith. And so Paul looks on that and understands that we have to live by faith. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. And again, he gets back to the law. The law is not on faith. No one who does them shall live by them. You know, just trying to be justified by the law, that's not compatible with faith. You know, it's one or the other. Either you trust God completely for your salvation or you trust yourself. They're incompatible. It kind of reminds me of Elijah. Remember when Elijah got together with the children of Israel? They were worshiping Baal and they got together on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal. And Elijah says, choose this day who you're going to follow. Either you follow God or you follow Baal. Can't do both. And it's the same here. We can't do both. We either try to be justified by the law and we will fail. It will not happen. Or we trust in God and Him alone. And then he goes on to further elaborate. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. That passage, by the way, is from Deuteronomy. And so we see Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why? Because we can't keep it. He had to become the curse for us. He had to take our sins and die on the cross for us. And then finally in verse 14, he applies it to the Gentiles. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ, Jesus, so that by faith we might, and he throws something in here, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Wonderful little gift. Not only do we receive salvation, but we get something else. The Holy Spirit of God. Well, how do we apply this? How do we look at faith? I believe in our nation right now, and maybe even in the church, we have a crisis of faith. Our faith has been minimized. It just doesn't seem very important. Janie B. Cheney in a World Magazine article recently uh, was uh, talking about this and looking at the societal views. I believe she was in reference to the Hobby Lobby case and how many people were upset that it went in their favor. And she said, understand one thing. Many people in our society today look 
at the Christian faith is nothing more than like a country club membership. It's not who you are. It's just a little minor part of your life which you could easily dispose of. And I suppose many of them have gotten that impression because of the way a lot of Christians live. Because our faith just doesn't seem that important. It is not a way of life. In fact, very often I think it gets trivialized. If it's minimized, it's because it's been trivialized. We have people who confess faith all the time. I remember we're teaching at Warson Christian Academy. I've had a couple of students who've done the same thing, but one in particular, who when it came to his graduation, he told about how important the Christian faith was for his life and how it was such a wonderful thing. And, and I was sitting there praying at that time when I heard him. I says, Lord, I pray that's so. But within a year's time, after he'd been to college for a year, he writes on Facebook that Christianity is not true. There is no God. And it's nothing but foolishness to him. And besides that, he tried Christianity. It didn't work. And I couldn't help but think when I saw that, you tried Christianity? You've got to be kidding me. I taught you. This guy was a straight-A student, except for one class, Bible. <laughs> nice kid. I liked him. Did he have a real faith? I didn't ever think he really examined what faith was. He never had a real faith in Jesus Christ. It was so sad. In, in huge contrast, for example, to Peter, Last time I, I preached here, I preached on, on Peter's two confessions. And one of them was when all the people were leaving Peter, or leaving Jesus, remember? And Jesus turns around and he says to his disciples, you're going to leave too? It's in John chapter 6. And Peter says, who would we go? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Basically, he's saying, I believe in you, Jesus Christ, and I can't believe in you. That's where my faith is. I think one of the th reasons that it's occurred is in the 19th century um, when we had a lot of the, uh, what was called the Second Great Awakening, a lot of the revivals, and then we had an individual like, um, like Finney who came along and he said, he wrote a book on revival and he says, you don't have revival, you can make one by doing this step, this step, and this step. And, and so the emphasis came to be on conversions and on a profession of faith, and that's what it was. They kept looking for a profession of faith, and we've lived under that shadow ever since. When did you come to Christ? Well, I came to Christ on this day. Now, that's it. I went forward at a meeting. I prayed the prayer. And so we've emphasized this kind of a, a profession of faith as opposed to the a, a genuine possession of faith, which stands firm. And so if you're going to look at just a profession, a lot of people will look at their faith and, and say, well, that's something that's just going to save me from hell. I remember 
being a camp counselor and having a young man who was, uh, I believe at the time, 13 years old. And, and so the faith, what's it to do? It's to save me from hell. And so he basically said, yep, I went forward. I've got my conversion behind me. Now I'm going to live my life any way I want. Because that's how he understood faith. Today, very often, what we look at is we look at uh, what does the, is the faith, is, what is it to do? It's to really make me happy. I want, I want to trust Jesus because I want him to make me happy, to make things go right for me. And so we kind of morph Christianity into the, to the things that we want. And I see with this is a loss of a sense of the judgment of God. You see, I think one of the problems today when I, I look at people who are neither nominal believers or not believers at all, they, they look at Christianity and, the, and they say, what will God do for me? Because they really don't fear, fear a judgment of God. Martin Luther, in one of his... Uh, early books in the Reformation, the Babylonian Captivity, wrote this. He said, A contrite heart is a precious thing, but is found only where there is a lively faith in the promises and threats of God. I like that. A lively faith in not just the promises of God, but also the threats of God. That God will judge sin. We live in a society today that says God is love, therefore there are no threats from God. I think Luther got it right. Luther understood this with his life. We need a lively faith that understands the promises and threats of God. Of course, you can't stop at the threats, but one of the things is that we do need to see the threats of God. To see how sin has so alienated us from God and the judgment of God. See, the problem is too many people in our society today look at their sin and they think they can manage it. It's not that bad. I can manage that. And, 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 and so I want some of you, God, but I don't want all of you because I can manage the rest. Or they think, well, yes, I've got some sin, but I'm really, really sorry That whole aspect of contrition and thinking their own contrition can help them in some way. Luther wrote about that. He says, beware then of putting your trust in your own contrition and ascribing the forgiveness of sins to your own sorrow. God does not have respect to you because of that, but because of faith by which you have believed his threatenings and promises and which wrought such sorrow in you. Luther knew this by experience. If you look at the life of Luther, before he had his conversion experience, he would go to confession. He was his confessor. Staupitz was his confessor. He was his worst nightmare. 
He knew that if he had other plans for the day, they were not going to be fulfilled when Luther came in the confession booth. If you remember the old uh, series, uh, Columbo, Detective Columbo, Peter Falk, you know, he'd question somebody and he'd be leaving. And he'd say, okay, that's a, whoop, whoop, one more question. I just have one more question. And he'd start to leave. And, oh, just one of the, you could just, just, I kind of imagine that's how Luther was. Luther would get done with his, his confessions and he'd get ready to leave. The stop us would be, no, whoa, whoa, one more, one more sin. I just remembered one more sin and another sin. Talk about contrition. Luther had contrition. And he realized contrition was not enough. That didn't save him. It was Christ's work that saved him. The promises of Christ's death and resurrection, that alone could save him. You see, Christ died not only to save us from our sins, but also to save us from our good works. Because our good works don't save us. And when we think that somehow God owes us because we did something special, we miss the boat. We are saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. And that's a powerful thing. And so we see in this passage, does it change our lives? It absolutely does. Why? Because now we have the Spirit. Verse 14, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So when we really trust God, we have the promise of the Spirit who is there. C.S. Lewis says, we trust not because a God exists, but because this God exists. See what he's saying? This God is the true and the living God. The power is really not in the faith. The power is in the God who saves. And he takes our faith and accounts it as righteousness. And so yet faith yields the promise of the Spirit, and so we have people transformed. Paul was transformed. What kind of guy was he? Guy who's really working hard, doing all these wonderful things, and then he realized it was nothing for what Christ had done for him. Transformed by faith. Peter, transformed by faith. A guy who within his works would go so far and then he'd chicken out. He did it walking on the water. Remember that? He did it at Jesus' trial. But the transformation of faith in his life led him to stand up and say, I must obey God rather than men. You want to kill me in the morning? That's fine. I'm going to go sleep in the, in the prison. That kind of peace he had. And of course, Luther was transformed as well. You see, the key thing is believing as we ought. And when we believe as we ought, we live as we ought. Consequently, maybe one of the best prayers we can pray is, Lord, I believe. 
help my unbelief. Let us pray. Lord, how thankful we are for the grace of Jesus Christ. Thankful for the power of the gospel of Jesus. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.